0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word and proclaim his gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, we praise you that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us that our sins may be many, but your mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, friends, I wonder if you've heard of the term, the Great Reset. The Great Reset. So in May of this year, the World Economic Forum suggested that the COVID-19 pandemic actually presents the world with a unique opportunity, an opportunity to reset the global economy to be more environmentally sustainable. So in this Great Reset, this is what we'd do. We'd, we'd put a universal price on carbon. We'd invest in innovation and technology. We'd subsidize the renewable sector and we'd defund carbon intensive industries. Now, look, whether or not you agree with the Great Reset, consider for a moment the rationale behind it. It presumes that the status quo is not sustainable. That something in our world needs to change. It presumes that there is something deeply wrong with our world, with our world economy. And the the only way to fix this problem is to hit the reset button. It presumes that something can be so ruined, so spoiled and so corrupted that the only possible solution is a system reset. Well, in our journey through Genesis 4 to 11 so far, we've seen humanity just get worse and worse and worse. Let me give you a recap. Genesis 3, sin was a disease that infected patient zero, Adam. In Genesis 4, sin spread to his children, Cain and Abel, and tore a family apart. Last week, in Genesis 5 and 6, sin became a full-blown global pandemic, corrupting absolutely everyone in every place. And last week, we ended with chapter 6, verse 7. This was the state of humanity. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. You see, friends, the world of Genesis, it is so ruined, so spoiled, so corrupted that the only fix is a system reset. And today, in Genesis 6 to 9, we see the great reset, not of the world economy, but of the world itself. And we begin with stage one. Stage one, creation corrupted. Creation corrupted. Well, we've all had that experience before. It's awfully sad. Seeing and picking up a bright red apple and thinking to ourselves, yes, this looks fresh. And then... We bite into it and we realize it might look good on the outside, but this apple is rotten to the core. And it's not just a little rotten. It's not just bruised on the outside. We can cut that bit off. No, it is literally rotten inside out, straight to the core. Well, friends, when God looks at the earth, what do you think he sees? Back at the creation of the world, God saw all that he had made and it was Very good indeed. But now, in Genesis 6 verse 11, what does he see? The earth is corrupt in God's sight and the earth is filled with wickedness. When God looks at the world, he sees a world that is corrupt to the core. He sees an earth filled with every kind of wickedness, an earth where every creature had corrupted its way. Friends, do you realize, do you notice that Genesis here, it's not just talking about people. It's not just talking about us. No, it's saying that absolutely everything in this world is corrupt. The earth is corrupt. Its creatures are corrupt. And its people are corrupt. You see, sin has infected not just humanity, but all of creation. And gosh, 2020 has shown us, hasn't it, that all of us, We live in a world under a curse. Our world, not just humanity, no, our whole world has something deeply wrong with it. It could be deadly bushfires. It could be a global pandemic. But something is wrong with our world. And you know what, Christian or not, so many people, and I know some of you here, want to see those problems fixed. And that's great. You know, you might have a great passion, for example, for the environment. You you might advocate for, in one sense, our carbon emissions to go down and our investment in renewables to go up. You might back a Green New Deal for the whole world economy. And you might think that our greatest environmental problem is big polluters and corporate interests. Now, all that might be true. But friends, the deepest problem is this. Our deepest environmental problem is actually our deepest human problem. It's sin. The sin which infects humanity is the sin which corrupts creation. And just like that rotten apple, our world, it is corrupt to the core. What would you do with a corrupt or rotten apple? Well, we'd do what any sane person would do, wouldn't we? We'd chuck it out, wouldn't we? We'd chuck it out. Well, let me ask you this question. What do you think God should do with a world that is corrupt and rotten to the core? Verse 13. I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. See, God, he's he's going to implement the greatest reset of all. At this point, at least, he will destroy the world in judgment. I can feel just us cringe at that moment. I mean, we cringe and we shudder at the mention of judgment, don't we? If you're not a Christian, you might read verse 13 and you might just feel horrified that a God could do such a thing. And for us Christians, don't we just feel a little bit uncomfortable, just a little bit embarrassed about the judgment of God? Ah, Adam, I'm trying to bring my friends. Why do you have to preach on this passage this week? But let me ask, right, if you were God, what would you do? If you were God, what would you do? Pan it out, right? Every living thing, every single living thing in our world is ruined, corrupted, and spoiled. And last week we saw that the world is ablaze with moral anarchy. This is what Genesis 6.5 says about it. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Okay, that's the world you've got, right? If you were God, what would you do? Give it a free pass? Let the rot spread even further? No, friends, if God is good, he must do with creation what a surgeon would do with a gangrenous limb. And what a carpenter would do with a rotten plank of wood. He must cut it off. If God is good, he must judge. Now that word corrupt in verse 12, it's actually the same word as destroy in verse 13. So we could read verse 12 in this way. God saw how destroyed the earth was, for every creature had destroyed its way on earth. Do you see what he's saying? That the earth is self-destructing. And so God will destroy what is already destined for destruction. Sin, no, it's not just any ordinary virus. It is an autoimmune disease. It will turn our cells against our cells. Friends, this is a creation corrupted. And God does what any good person, what a good God must do. He will judge the world. Now, that's not good news if you can't tell. But I want you to hear this. Even though he could, even though God is well within his rights to do so, he does not give up on us. He does not give up on this world. In verse 14, God calls Noah to build an ark, a boat. 137 metres long, 22 metres wide and 14 metres high. And in verse 16, God makes a covenant. He makes a promise. He promises to save Noah's family and two of every living creature to enter the safety of this ark. Three times in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, and chapter 7, verse 3, God headlines the purpose of this ark to keep them alive. Do you see, friends, in a flood of death, God preserves life. In wrath, God remembers mercy. And it's pure mercy. Because absolutely everything, including Noah, his family, and every creature on this ark, Noah is corrupt, just like the rest of the world. Just think about it. A creation corrupted. A God within his rights to destroy it. And yet God does not give up on us. Stage one, creation corrupted. Stage two, creation undone, creation undone. Well, unfortunately, I know we have quite a few law students in our church. And so here's a test if you remember it from first year. When I was back in law school, I learned this Latin term in contract law. And this is the term, see if some of you remember it, it's called ab initio, ab initio. Marcus, do you know what it means? That's not a rhetorical question, what does it mean? As if it had never happened before, from the beginning. Because apparently, if you say anything in Latin, you sound smart, um, slightly arrogant like a lawyer, right? Um, If a contract is to be voided ab initio, what you do is you treat all parties as if they were right from the beginning as if the contract was never entered into in the first place. See, it's effectively undoing the contract. It's rolling it back to the point at which it never even existed. In chapter 7, verses 6 to 24, that is exactly what God is doing with our world. He's uncreating this world ab initio. He's rolling it all the way back to the point at which this world never even existed. Just notice, right, chapter 7, verse 6, the floods come and waters cover the earth, just as the waters did before the world began. In verse 11, the barrier that God created on day two, separating water from water, is lifted and the floodgates of heaven are opened wide. In verses 17 to 20, the separation between land and sea that God created on day three, that's wiped out and the waters surge over the mountains of the earth. And in verses 21 to 24, the creatures whom God filled this earth with on days four to six, they're totally wiped out. Friends, can you see what God is doing here? He is judging this world by undoing creation. This is the great reset, not just of humanity, but of the whole world. To Just notice for a moment how extensive this destruction is in verses 21 to 23. James brought out the emphasis perfectly. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. From mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Do you see, friends, nothing is spared. Nothing is spared because everything is corrupt. It's bleak, isn't it? But you've got to love verse 23. You've got to love verse 23. Only... Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. Gosh, just think about it for a moment, right? That's where you want to be. In a flood of death, there is an ark of life. There is a place of safety. There is a vessel of hope. You see, as God uncreates this world in a flood of death, he preserves our world in an ark of life. And he doesn't just preserve humanity. In verses 13 to 16, he preserves all the wildlife according to their kinds, all the livestock according to their kinds, all old creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. You see, this ark, it doesn't just have Noah. It's a microcosm of the whole world. It's everything God created, protected and preserved in this one vessel of life. Just think about what, what would you do? Where would you want to be if you lived in the time of Genesis? Man, I don't know about you, but I want to be on that ark. I want to be shut into that ark. I want to be hidden in that ark. I want to be protected by that ark. Because in a sea of death... There is a vessel of life. Friends, in the end, for every one of us sitting here today, there are only two places, one of two places that we can be. We will either be in a sea of death or we will be on a vessel of life. All of us will either live under God's judgment or we will live protected by God's mercy. Our whole lives center around this question. Where are you? Are you in the flood of death or are you in the ark of life? Friends, one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and no one will be spared because everyone, our whole world, is corrupt. Other than those who are hidden by Jesus. But you see, for Jesus is that greater ark, isn't he? He is that better vessel. He is the one true place of safety. If you want to be spared, if you want to escape God's judgment, if you want to receive God's mercy, then here's what you got to do. You need to cling to Jesus. You need to hold on to him for dear life. And if you do, he will save you through the flood. He will save you through the waters of judgment. Stage two, creation undone. Stage three, creation restored. Just imagine for a moment being Noah. Just imagine being Noah, right? 150 days adrift at sea while the world around you is wiped out by a flood. Now, when you think about it, us, we've just in, Melbourne, we love our city. We've just endured 112 days of lockdown while the world around us was hit by deadly virus. And you might go, well, it's nothing that Noah went through. I survived coronavirus. Let's face it, right? Our lockdown, it can't compare to what Noah and his family experienced in Genesis A. Remember, they didn't have Instagram. So imagine what you've got to be feeling at day 100, day 100, right? As you look out and see nothing but quite literally a sea of destruction. As you hear no one else, as you see nothing else for 150 days. Let me ask, if you're in that situation, at what point, right? At what point do you wonder, God, have you forgotten me? God, do you remember me? I'd probably last maybe three days, you know? The turning point comes in chapter 8, verse 1, with two simple words. God remembered. God remembered. How wonderful is that? God remembered his promise. God remembered his covenant back in chapter 6 that in this ark he would preserve and save the world. I mean, surely the two most beautiful words in this passage are those words, God remembered. But, but, don't misunderstand what these two words imply. The fact that God remembered does not mean that God ever forgot. Growing up, I loved watching The Simpsons, and in one of my favourite episodes, Homer buys a pet lobster called Pinchy, and one day he decides to give Pinchy the lobster a nice, hot bath. Well, guess what happens? Where's Pinchy? Something's smelling really good right now. That's right, Homer forgets. And what happens to poor Pinchy? He boils to death. That's right, Maddie. Homer eats him for dinner. Friends, God does not forget about Noah like Homer forgets about Pinch. He hasn't just left him there. Go, oh my gosh, Noah! When the Bible speaks of God remembering, it speaks of Him calling His promise to mind. It speaks of God honoring His promise. It speaks of God honoring His promise to protect His people, and that's exactly what God does. You see, friends, if God's judgment was to uncreate this world. His promise now is to recreate this world. So notice now, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, God causes us a wind to pass over the earth. Just like his spirit hovered over the waters before the world began. In verse 2, the sources of the watery depths and floodgates of the sky were closed. God, just like God, separated the waters from the sky on day two. In verses 5 to 13, the waters recede and the land becomes visible once again, just like God separated the earth and the seas on day 3. And in verses 15 to 19, God calls the living creatures out of the ark. He sends them into the world, just like He filled the earth with those very same creatures on days 4 to 6. And in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, God commands Noah to be a second Adam. To do what the first Adam just failed to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Friends, can you see now what God is doing? Just as He uncreated this world in judgment, He is now recreating this world in grace. He's creating a whole new world with new creatures and a new humanity. You see, God is the God of second chances. He's the God of fresh starts. He's the God of new life. He's the God of a new world. God made a promise. God remembered that promise. And now God seals that promise. In verses 8 to 17, he makes a covenant with all creation that he will never again destroy this world by a flood. So for the rest of human history, God promises to preserve this world. And whenever you go outside and look at a rainbow in the sky, we should remember that God has hung up his weapon. He has hung up his bow of judgment until that final day of judgment. If you're not a Christian, this is pretty heavy stuff. I know that, right? But you need to know this. If you're not a Christian, this is a promise, this is a covenant that God has made with you, even if you never trust in Jesus, though we would love you to. The very reason you can live, breathe and have your being is all because of this promise. It's because of this promise that you can enjoy every day of life. And it's because of this promise that God has not given up on this world And even if you don't follow Jesus now, I want you to know this. God has not given up on you. You need to know that it's because of this promise, that actually you owe this God your very life. And one day God will judge this world not by flood, but by fire. And in one sense, he'll destroy this world once and for all. And on that day, only those who are hidden in the ark those who are found in Jesus will be safe. Only those who cling to Jesus will say through the waters. If you're not a Christian, please heed this warning. Please turn to Jesus. Please find safety in him. Fellow Christians, we have so many reasons to be thankful, don't we? Not only has God saved us from his judgment, no, his promise to give us a whole new world to enjoy for eternity. You know, sometimes we risk reducing the gospel down to a mere question of personal salvation. That the gospel is about nothing more than just how I get into heaven. But when we do that, this is what we're doing, we're unintentionally implying that God doesn't care about our world. That God is unconcerned with our earth or our environment. Now, don't get me wrong. Our salvation, it sits at the heart of the gospel. But the scope of the gospel is far wider than that. God's purposes are cosmic in their scale. They are universal in their reach. God will redeem not just our bodies and our souls. He will redeem our whole world. You see, God is not just king over a people. He is king over the earth. I want you to just picture it with me for a moment. I don't know if you're a visual learner, but if not, learn, right? This is the moment to just imagine something. Imagine. We live in a world that is perfect in every way. The rivers run clear as crystal. The air is crisp and fresh. The sun warms but does not burn. The wind cools but does not freeze. The lion will lie down with the lamb. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit without fear of danger. And you and I will enjoy a perfect relationship with our perfect God. And we will live with him on a new earth and a perfect world. Man, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait to be there. I want you to be there. A number of years ago, my friend said to me, and am I long for eternity? I hope to see you there. I hope to sit with you drinking a perfected latte by the, you know, by the side of a clean yarrow. And we just go, no, a clean yarrow is just not possible. That is not humanly possible. God will do what man cannot. Stage three, creation restored. Stage four, creation unchanged. Now, you might be reading these chapters and wondering to yourself, right? Adam, if God restored creation, if he really hit the reset button on our world, then why does our world, well, why is our world still so broken? Why is our world still so fallen? If you go online and you read the news, the UK apparently is being plunged into its second wave of coronavirus. That the U.S. is confronting racial and political divisions like never before. Australia's worsening relationship with China threatens our future safety and prosperity. And when we look at our own lives, let's face it, the story isn't much better, is it? Our relationships are torn apart by pride and insecurity. Our work is frustrated by ambition and self-glory. And even within the church, let's face it, right? Even among fellow Christians, we fight, we bicker, we argue, we gossip. And you think to yourself, how in the world can this be creation restored? Well, look at what happens to Noah. Look at what happens to Noah in Genesis 9. It's pretty unbecoming. But we quickly realize that creation might be restored, but at heart, it is actually unchanged. In chapter 9, verse 20, instead of ruling over nature, no, nature now rules over Noah. He's drunk. He's intoxicated on the wine of the vineyard. And just like Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed at the fall, step up, Noah, because now it's your turn. He lies naked and ashamed in his tent. In Genesis 3, the first Adam fell so far. And here in Genesis 9, the second Adam falls just as far all over again. And just like Adam's curse was passed on to his kids, well, Noah's curse is passed on to Canaan, the son who uncovered his father's shame. What went wrong? What went so wrong that even after the great reset, the problems of our world still persist? Well, friends, the answer is hidden back in chapter 8, verse 21. I wonder if you saw it. God says, the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Friends, the flood may have reset our world, but it did not reset our hearts. You and I, we have a problem that no flood can wash away. Still, the heart of our problem is a problem of our hearts. What do you want to do in life? What cause do you want to commit yourself to? We could reset the world economy. We could reset our political structures. Gosh, we could even reset and control how humans behave. But I'll tell you, the one thing that you and I and none of us can ever reset is this. We cannot reset the human heart. What's wrong with our world today? Why is there such great brokenness, hurt and imperfection in every corner of our earth? Because the inclination of the human heart is nothing but evil. All the time. And if we want to fix our world, changing economic structures, social programs, and even human behavior is nothing more than tinkering around the edges. You no, know, the true cause worth committing your life to is this Is there one who can reset our hearts? Friends, we need a deeper cleansing, we need a greater reset. And that's precisely what we celebrate at Christmas, actually. When God sends His Son to reset this world by resetting our hearts once and for all. God sends Jesus to die for a fallen humanity, not just to save our souls, but to change our hearts and to redeem our world. How will God recreate our corrupted world? He will redeem our sinful hearts. Friends, let me ask. Do you ever feel that God has forgotten you? Do you ever feel like Noah, stranded at sea for 150 days, wondering if God even remembers your name? You might look at our world. You might look at the church. You might even look at your life and wonder, where is God? Has he forgotten me? Has he forgotten his promise to preserve this world? Has he forgotten his promise to protect his people? Has God forgotten me? And the message of Genesis 6 to 9 is simply this. God has not forgotten. God remembers And one day he will reset this world and he will redeem this world and his people once and for all. I can't wait for that day. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, that our sins may be many, but your mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Amen.